Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer, Jacob Solis. So Jacob, what do we have coming up today? Well, John and I sat down this week to talk about the Nevada caucus and the highs and lows and its future. And after that, John talked with Dr. Mark Harrison, the president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare, a nonprofit healthcare system that serves the Western U.S. And at the end, John and I play a little presidential primary trivia. We give him the questions I had last week and struggled with. We'll see if he can do any better. But first, let's hear a few indie stories read for our partners over at KUNR Public Radio. Originally reported by Jacob Solis, the Democratic National Committee is launching a second round of major investments in key 2020 battleground states, including Nevada. Dubbed Battleground Buildup 2020, the funds will go towards a rapid buildup of campaign infrastructure ahead of what is expected to be a hard-fought general election later this year. The DNC said in a release that the investments will go towards doubling the number of field organizers, opening additional field offices, and funding new data and operations staffs, all with the goal of expanding pathways for their eventual nominee to secure 270 electoral votes. The party-level investment comes as the landscape of electoral swing states continues to shift between the two major parties. States such as Ohio and Florida have trended towards Republicans, while states like Nevada and Virginia emerged as more blue than purple during the 2016 and 2018 elections. Originally reported by Riley Snyder, attorneys for a ballot question to create an independent redistricting commission in Nevada have filed a motion with the state Supreme Court to dismiss what they call frivolous appeals meant to delay signature gathering. Fair Maps Nevada, a political action committee backing the ballot question, filed a motion to dismiss after a second appeal was filed seeking to disqualify the petition due to alleged issues with its description of effect. Announced in November, the proposed ballot measure would create a seven-member independent redistricting commission with four members appointed by legislative leaders of both parties in the Assembly and the Senate. It was then quickly subjected to a lawsuit claiming that the proposed description of effect was misleading. A Carson City District Court judge agreed with the assessment in late December and instructed backers of the ballot question to use a new description of effect, which they agreed to do while refiling the petition. For KUNR News, I'm Joey Lovato with the Nevada Independent. When this podcast hits your feed, it'll be on the eve of the South Carolina presidential primary. That makes last weekend's Nevada caucus ancient history by comparison. But we here at Indie Matters wanted to give the caucus one last look before we wish it farewell. Here to walk us through it is the editor of the Nevada Independent and boss man himself, John Ralston. John, thanks for being here. Hi, Jacob. All right, so I want to get to the caucus process itself in a second, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the results just a little bit. So Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders won a resounding victory here, about 47% of pledged delegates after the dust settled. And he did it largely by winning nearly every single demographic category. After a narrow loss in Iowa and a narrow win in New Hampshire, how did Bernie manage it here? He did it uh, with uh, two things, I think, Jacob. One is he has the most enthusiasm of any of the candidates among his core following, and he had uh, had that core following here in 2016, and he built on it. But this time, unlike 2016, he had a real organization. Uh, Political pros were running it, so they were able to harness that energy. Uh, Much better organization than any of the other campaigns, much better populated organization. As uh, uh, Megan Messerly reported several times, 250 people on the ground, more than twice as many people as anybody else. And they were very strategic. They targeted Latino voters, uh, including some inside the Culinary Union, which was against Bernie Sanders. So uh, they essentially did everything right. 
Okay, and so I want to break down some of the other candidate performances too. Second, but a distant second, was Joe Biden. And this comes after he led Nevada polls for pretty much the entire race, minus the last 10 days. Now, there was a lot of narrative setting in in those 10 days and saying, well, second is still strong and we're on to South Carolina. Uh, but what does that second place really mean for the Biden campaign? Well, it's interesting because you just had the timeline right. Biden was ahead in every poll. There hadn't been a lot of polling in Nevada. And then the polling that did start to be uh, uh, released in the week before the caucus showed Biden was behind uh, Bernie Sanders. He just didn't have nearly the kind of organization that Bernie had here. And the culinary didn't go uh, all out for him uh, as it might have. And it started uh, early. And you know, at least Warren and, and Buttigieg and uh, Sanders were better organized here than Biden. And it just, by the time he had lost so much momentum, first in Iowa and then his disastrous single-digit showing in New Hampshire, it was clear he wasn't going to do well here. And as you put it, you're right, narrative setting, oh, look, I'm the comeback kid. I finished in second place. 27 points behind. They leave out that last part. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, and we may, we may discuss this or not, uh, on the eve of South Carolina, it looks like Joe Biden has recovered well enough that he's going to probably win. Okay. And so moving on to Pete Buttigieg, the former South Bend mayor, he came in a definite third, um, but not without a little bit of complaining along the way there. Now, his campaign lodged a complaint with the party about um, vote counting tallies and, and the way that early voting was incorporated into the actual caucus on Saturday. Can you dig into that a little bit? They found a bunch of errors, and you knew there were going to be errors. It's a caucus, and the way they did it this time with early voting and having to transmit all those votes into the precincts on caucus day. But the timing of that complaint is very important, Jacob. Remember, it took him a couple of days to count the votes. He essentially filed that uh, complaint at midnight on the first day, after the first day. It looked then, there weren't a lot of votes in, but it looked then like he and Joe Biden were in a dead heat for second place. And again, to create that narrative coming out of Nevada, he wanted second place. He wanted to say, it's me and Bernie, just like it was in Iowa and, and New Hampshire. That did not happen. By the time all the votes were counted, Biden had, had outdistanced him by far. And so that complaint has pretty much been forgotten. I also want to talk about Elizabeth Warren because her campaign has really ebbed and flowed throughout this entire process, and that includes Nevada, where very early on she had many, many staffers on the ground, more than anybody else, but she was quickly outpaced. And so by the time we get to the caucus, we have this story that essentially she has this great debate performance the Wednesday before the caucus, but it's too little too late. Early voting ended on Tuesday. And so how hurt was Elizabeth Warren by the fact that early voting missed out on her debate? It's hard to tell. She certainly was hurt by it because, I mean, there's very few times after a debate that there's complete consensus on anything. But there was consensus even from people who weren't Warren fans that she had done by far the best in that debate. And I thought so as well. And so it could have helped her. There's some anecdotal evidence that she had very good turnout compared to the rest of the campaigns on caucus day or at least some of the campaigns. And if that had occurred before the three quarters of the votes had been passed, could she have done better? Sure. But Bernie Sanders was still much better organized than she was here. And the all hands on deck approach by the Biden campaign to flood the, 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 the both the airwaves and the ground with people uh, here, I'm not so sure that she could have moved up uh, uh, and finished third or even second. I, I just I don't think there was enough time. 
Okay. And so last but not least, there are the other two candidates who are still competitive in this race. And this was Amy Klobuchar and Tom Steyer. Now, Steyer had blanketed the state with ads for months ahead of the election. And Amy Klobuchar was counting on just a sudden surge of interest and momentum coming out of a a surprise third place in New Hampshire. Now, both of them really struggled to get uh, more than 15% viability in that first alignment of the caucus. So were both candidates hurt by the caucus process itself? Uh, The answer is yes, but let's not forget Tom Steyer will always have on his permanent record, Jacob, that he won Mineral County, population 4,500. And he's the only person besides uh, um, uh, Bernie and and Buttigieg to win a county. Bernie won 12, Buttigieg won 4, and and, and Steyer won 1. The only reason, in case people are wondering, that Biden finished second is because he did so well in Clark County relative to the rest of the state, even though he didn't didn't, uh, win it. Uh, Listen, Steyer tried to buy... uh, 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 his way into a good position in Nevada with all his ads and with all his mail pieces. I mean, you know, everybody I know, probably everybody you know, talked about getting a Steyer piece in the mail or seeing a Steyer ad, but you need an organization to win a caucus. And Klobuchar had no organization here either. She showed up in November with, with her first uh, staff folks. And so, you know, she did have some momentum. She got 20% in New Hampshire, surprised a lot of people, but not compared to the momentum that, that, that Bernie had coming, coming from there. And so she was just completely subsumed by the other candidates. Okay, so I want to talk about the process itself a little bit, because much has been made in the aftermath of the disaster in Iowa. And so there was basically a very quick turnaround by the party here to get rid of the apps they were using, switch to Google Docs, or Google Forms, rather, and uh, basically revise the process and then telegraph that we are not Iowa, what happened to Iowa won't happen here. Was that the case? It certainly was not a disaster compared to Iowa. There are irregularities. New York Times, I think, found that, that a forensic study found uh, uh, irregularities in 9% of the precincts or something uh, like that. There are always going to be problems with the caucus. But it was not as big a disaster as Iowa. We're not Iowa. The state party here knows what they were doing. They, they were confronted with a no-win situation, though, Jacob. The, the, I, because of the Iowa disaster, as you pointed out, they had to scrap this app and these programming that they worked on a year, for a year at least, to get right so they could transfer all those early votes into the correct precincts and not have to worry so much about manual counting. So, But then they essentially had to go back and, and go back to like uh, uh, the non-technological era as much as they could, right? Pre-industrial revolution. And so it was slower. It, it, it took a long time to count it. They got lucky in one sense, I think, or we could have been another Iowa, and that was the fact that it was a blowout, and that was obvious from, from the first batch of results. If it had been a close race, can you imagine what would have happened uh, if it was a three- or four-way race? There, there would have been more complaints than Buttigieg, I assure you, and the fact that it was taken so long, and uh, there, there, there would have been real problems then. But I think the Democratic Party here, which is staffed by some of the most talented operatives I've met in all the years I've covered politics, did the best that it could. But it's a caucus. It's a crazy process. They're lucky it was a blowout. And talking about that crazy process, we've had everyone from Governor Steve Sisolak to Harry Reid saying, well, maybe it's time we don't have this caucus anymore. Was this the last caucus? Definitely. There's not going to be a caucus again. It has to be changed by state law, but the Democrats control the whole apparatus in Carson City. So there'll be a bill to make it a primary in 2021, I guess, and I guess it would be passed very, very easily. But there's a lot more going on there than just changing it to the primary because people don't like the caucus. Nevada's, the Democrats are really worried that we're going to lose our early state status. Heck, I'm worried that we're going to lose our early state status. So they're trying to send a signal, a coordinated signal to the Democratic National Committee, 
We're not Iowa. We know we, we're, we're not that much of a disaster. Um, please don't take away our early state status. We're going to be a primary next time. Oh, and by the way, we still have the most diverse uh, electorate. You should make us first. I don't know if we'll get first, but this is a play to try to get us to keep our early state status. All right. So I guess I'll end with this. And I guess I have to end with this. Nevada always matters in these presidential elections. But with Iowa being what it was and no clear winner in New Hampshire, the stage was already set for Nevada to really set the tone going forward. Now that the dust is settled and we know what happened, did we matter? I guess uh, I, I hate to say it this way, Jacob, but I don't know how much we mattered yet until we know what happens in South Carolina. It looks from all the recent polling that Bernie didn't get as much of a bump as, as he might have hoped from all the momentum, but it did change the race in the sense that it was clear after Nevada that he was the front runner, and that affected the debate the other night because they all came after him, and he even made a joke about, you know, people are mentioning my name a lot. So, and that that is why all the stuff about uh, uh, him supporting Fidel Castro and how much his programs will cost. That was a direct result of, of what happened in Nevada and him being the clear front runner after Iowa and New Hampshire. So uh, to some extent, that meant we mattered. Uh, the question is now, did he get enough of a bump to make inroads in South Carolina and finish a close second to Joe Biden? The answer, based on most recent polling, is maybe not. Now, we haven't seen that yet. And South Carolina may matter less than, than, than it ever has because Super Tuesday, which follows three days later, is going to have so many delegates apportioned, including California and Texas. So we will always matter to some extent. How much we matter this time may be in uh, 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 what happened in the run-up to South Carolina and Super Tuesday with Bernie being uh, uh, elevated to front-runner status and then becoming the target of everyone. That is the way we clearly matter. All right, so we'll have to leave it there. John, thanks so much for joining. Thank you. All right, and from the caucus, we now move to another topic, which is health care. John talks with Dr. Mark Harrison, the CEO and president of Intermountain Healthcare. I'll let him explain a little bit more about what that is. Dr. Harrison, thanks for joining us on Indie Matters. Thanks. Glad to be here. Will you call me Mark, please? Uh, I, I will not. We'll, we'll go from there. Only because I have respect for doctors, tremendous respect. And you are a, you're a pediatric care physician, right? Uh, pediatric ICU doctor, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that, that, uh, that's the Lord's work. So I'm, I'm going to call you doctor. So let, let's talk about Intermountain Healthcare, which you are the president and, and CEO of. Most people listening to this podcast probably don't know what that is. But you're, it's a huge company, 40,000, uh, I think, caregivers. And, and you have a presence in Nevada. Tell people what that is. Yeah, well, thank you very much. So Intermountain Healthcare was formed in 1975. We're based in Salt Lake City, Utah. And we've got boots on the ground presence in uh, Idaho, Nevada, and Utah at this point, and a telepresence in all eight Intermountain states plus um, Alaska. We are a not-for-profit organization. And although we're big and we run a rigorous business, what we really, we serve a charitable mission. We serve our communities. And um, we're really thrilled to be here in Nevada. And we're very excited about the acquisition we made of healthcare partners over the summer. And we have a lot to learn from them and hopefully a lot to add as well. If you read your website, and I've done that and I've read a little bit about you, the word that I see most of all is innovation. You, you really want, and, and if anything needs innovation, it's the healthcare system in this country, right? People complain about it all the time. It's hopelessly complicated. It's way too much of our GDP. And, and, and two big things you hear about in Nevada and probably in other markets is 
the price of health care, and access to health care. Yes. So talk about what's different about what you're doing. What do you think needs to be done? Is, is it hopelessly complex or is it, what, is it hopelessly complicated by the people in it and the people who describe it? I think it's probably a yes and yes. This is a really complicated business. It spans everything from uh, prenatal care all the way through end of life. Pharmacy, you know, we have a, a hospitality function and we, we have a lot of rooms. We've got large numbers of, of caregivers in lots of different kinds of businesses within the business. So we run everything from a revenue cycle to a pharmacy to supply chain, etc. But in some ways it's really simple. The way we frame it we're meant to keep people well. And that's the innovation that is really at the core of Intermountain Healthcare. We believe and we try and live the ethos that everyone's gonna get sick and we're gonna be thrilled to take care of them and they're gonna get great care in our hospitals and other acute care facilities, but we really need to try and put ourselves out of business. And we need to do that by keeping people well. And I, I, that sounds simple, right? It, Keeping it, people well, but it's not simple, right? Because some people can't afford the drugs that they need. Some people, as I mentioned earlier, and we can talk more about this, don't have access to the health care that they need. It's, it's a simple solution, but it's a simple goal, but a, a complex way to get there, right? Yes, and you know we really keep think saying yes to every question. I guess. That's good too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good practice for me for home as well. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Uh, it's a yes and so. It is complicated, it is difficult, but the way we're getting this done is we're not relying on the government to make decisions. We're actually partnering as broadly and deeply as possible to get to good middle of the road thought processes that allow people to be covered and to be able to afford their health care. So you think you think the go- it's not a good idea for the government to be involved as much in healthcare because it's so bureaucratic, hopelessly complex to keep using the same phrase? Is that the reason? So I have an immense respect for our elected officials, and we are highly compliant with all the rules and regulations in our highly regulated industry that we have to be. My sense is that legislation is a blunt-edged weapon for a very subtle problem. So we try and think about how can we partner to get things done. So I'll, I'll give you an example. You mentioned drug costs. And uh, you know the what's been going on with generic drugs in the United States is a travesty. So private equity firms come in, buy up rights to a drug, collapse the prices, push everyone else in that drug manufacturing space out, and then jack up prices by a thousand times. So whether it's the EpiPen fiasco, you know, you, you, you name it, there's a lot of examples of this. So what did we do? We helped form a not-for-profit drug company that functions as a public utility called Civica. We partnered with six other healthcare systems and three philanthropies. We started this 18 months ago. We already have 1,200 hospitals. One-third of American hospital beds are subscribed to this, and we're providing generic drugs at low cost to those hospitals. So early days, we, there's no declaration of victory. The next phase of this is Civic is starting an outpatient division because we know that Americans spend about 40% of their healthcare dollars on drugs and they're rationing drugs and they're rationing other parts of their life because they can't afford them. This is wrong and we're going to fix it. It's almost an oxymoron, right? A nonprofit drug company. People are saying, come on, there's no such thing as a nonprofit drug company. And one of the reasons pharmaceutical companies say that, that, that they need to charge so much is R&D, uh, and there's a payoff uh, in the end. What's the business model for a nonprofit drug company that makes it different? This is a little bit different than the sexy new drug. So I'm, I'm, I have cancer. I'm 
doing very well. I had a bone marrow transplant about three months ago. My life is saved because of new technologies and new drugs. So the drugs that are, have me alive and well and going for a run in the morning are drugs that didn't exist five years By ago. By the way, for people, people can't see this, you look great. Con congratulations, all thank, the best to you on that. Th and you. I know something about uh, having to take drugs too, having had a, a kidney transplant operation and, and you have a lowered immune system and there's all kinds of other dangers that are attendant with that. So we, we share that. Now what's different, so I'm a fan of R&D associated with pharma, both professionally and personally. But what's wrong about the generic drug space right now is when those drugs were on patent, we all paid that R&D money back, right? That's fair. But what's not fair is for insulin to be $150 a vial when um, Civica believes that they can make it for 10 bucks a vial. And interestingly, the folks who, the original discoverers of insulin, they sold the rights to it for $1 because they knew it was a social good. So what we're seeing now in my mind is reprehensible and, and absolutely wrong in every possible way. So what does Intermountain do? We find the best partners in the world and we get together with them to solve big problems and we do it in a way that is socially responsible and creates health and hopefully avoids the need for healthcare. Are there uh, Nevada customers for Civica already? I actually don't know what, what's going on in this Because I wonder if there's enough about. awareness about it because it, 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 so it sounds... So my guess is that the... Well, you've got HCA hospitals here, and HCA is a board member. So my guess is that Nevada is benefiting already. Uh, there's probably, you probably know there's been some legislation here to be, bring more transparency to things like insulin, and, and, and there was a follow-up bill to that in the, in the last legislative session. We have actually sued, the Nevada Independent has sued the state government to try to get information from the state about what these companies are actually charging versus what it costs them to make it. Why do you think that the, the big pharma is so opposed to transparency in this case? You know, I, I, I can't answer that. I'm not on the inside of their industry, but... In addition to pharma, I think the role that the pharmacy benefit managers play, there's a, there's a lot of sort of hidden cost in Those there. Those are the middlemen well. in case people don't know. But, but they can actually account for, you know, 75, 80, 90 percent of the price that customers pay. And they're more unregulated, right? They're quite unregulated. Yeah. And in, one of the things that I love about Civica is it cuts them out. Or Civica says you can work with the not-for-profit, but you need to be transparent about the cut you're taking. So that's fair is fair, right? So I think that's the model we're taking to try and change American health care. And that's, I mean, that's a huge part of it, drug prices, of course. So In, in partnership. So, you know, I'll give you an example. So one of the things we now know about health is that there's, you know, how you exercise, what you eat, where you live, the social determinants of health. Are you lonely? Those are things that really determine how well you are. And what we've done is we've now taken two geographic areas that we serve of quite a poor population, and we're studying what it takes to keep people well and out of emergency departments and out of hospitals. Intermountains funded this to the tune of about $2 million per year times three years for each of the two areas. We're already, as we're learning, we're already beginning to understand it's things like transportation, food security, housing, et cetera, that make a huge difference in whether people use emergency departments or hospitals. How can we do that? We partner with the government. We, we partner with local not-for-profits. We partner with law enforcement. We partner with the schools. 
about 50 or 60 partners, but we could never do this ourselves, nor should we. But together, we can get extraordinary things done. And there was not a piece of legislation that was passed. This was all based on common goals, delivering common good. What was it that made you, I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk. Um, and you're obviously still, after having been a doctor for some time and been involved in the healthcare system for some time, an idealist. You, you, you're an optimist about, I mean, at least you seem to be. You're, you're smiling at me now, but but most most people who are in, involved in something like this for a long time can cynical or jaded. But you've decided through your experience, listen, there's a different way to do this. The nonprofit model is, 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 is the way to do this. Was there an epiphany that something happened that made you decide so to do this? So cynicism is the weak person's way out. It's easy. Roll your eyes be the naysayer. It takes a lot more strength and courage to be the person who is, tries to make a difference. And my sense is that's who you are. And um, I try and be that way too. If I have a strength, it's every morning I wake up no matter how crummy the day before was and I'm ready to roll and I'm ready to make a difference. And I'm surrounded by good people who believe they can make a difference as well. Uh, I could sit here and talk to you about healthcare all day, but we only have a, a few minutes left, and I want to get to a couple other issues quickly. Yeah. And, and, and some of the things you've talked about have covered this. And you mentioned that, that you're in Idaho, U Utah, and, and Nevada. There are the same problems in each one of those states, and that is there's a tremendous problem with rural communities and their access to healthcare. It's much different yes. uh, than in the urban areas. Is there a, a one solution that fits all for those kinds of states where you can improve access to healthcare in rural communities? Um, I believe so. I, I do want to just expand on your comment for a second. You know, we're seeing rural hospitals close across the United States at an unprecedented rate, and we're seeing um, healthcare deserts crop up where women are in labor and they're driving 100, 110 miles to try and get to the hospital before their baby comes. There are only four out of the 50 states that have not had a rural hospital close in the last decade. Utah is one of those. We own half of the rural hospitals in the state of Utah and we support the other half because we, we don't want that to happen. And how do we actually keep those hospitals vibrant? We've actually foregone revenue at our large centers and we keep people close to home. So we are a major innovator in the telespace. We are the largest virtual hospital in the country and we offer immense numbers of resources that allow people to stay close to home. One example is for somebody like me, somebody with cancer, we had nurses at one of our rural hospitals who were noticing that their neighbors were choosing to die instead of get chemotherapy because they didn't want to spend what they perceived to be the end of their life driving back and forth to one of our big centers. Well, we created tele-oncology, and we now have eight tele-oncology services spread across the Intermountain West that allows people to stay close to home. The collateral benefit for that is their chemotherapy revenue can stay close to home also. And so those small local hospitals can keep patients there, and they can stay alive and well. So we think this model of being socially responsible, keeping people in their communities, near their friends, near their churches, near their families and supporting the local hospitals is the solution to America's um, healthcare crisis. But Nevada and Utah and, and Idaho, excuse me, are probably not exactly the same as Utah in the sense that you went in there and you solved this problem there, or at least attempted to solve it. Sounds like you may you got to come in and now rejuvenate these communities, right? Like in a place like Nevada somehow. What's the solution there? So we're very excited to work in, um, in rural Nevada. Healthcare Partners Nevada has a number of rural clinics. I have not yet visited them. I look forward to doing that. And it's a combination of making sure you 
have the kind of healthcare that keeps people well, which by the way, tends to be less expensive than taking care of people when they're sick. But we've also engaged in job creation in a lot of these communities as well. And we'll look forward to understanding what the options are here in Nevada. My producer's gonna kill me for going a little bit over, but I just wanna ask you, I mean, it seems to me that this whole issue of rural healthcare is also inextricably linked to, to issues like broadband in, in, in rural communities. Because, because of the telemedicine aspect, that would be a huge difference in rural Nevada, for instance, I would think. So it's not only the broadband to deliver the service, that if you're going to do economic development in these towns, it often relates to the tech world. So how do you help people who live in rural, small-town America have jobs that can support their families? And it often involves distance work. And um, so broadband is actually important for that as well. Look, um, I am a total optimist. You know, the estimates are that if the rest of American healthcare practiced the way Intermountain did, in an integrated fashion, not-for-profit, organized around keeping people well, that the cost for American healthcare would drop between 25 and 30 percent. That actually creates plenty of money for everything. I mean, fancy drugs, new procedures, R&D, innovation. But I think the problem is that it's still too easy to make money doing the wrong things. So driving lots of volume, pure fee-for-service, that worries me. But I am starting to see examples and interest from colleagues around the country who share some of our values, and it makes me hopeful. Well, I, I hope you're right. And Dr. Harrison, we, we've covered about three of the 6,000 topics we could have talked about. I hope you'll come back again on Indie Matters and talk about it. I really appreciate it. It'd be comment. my pleasure. All right. And thank best you. of luck to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So now we've arrived at the fun segment of the show, and today it's a treat. I have John here with me still, and we're going to run through some presidential trivia. If you're a faithful listener of the podcast, then you know I was absolutely trashed by some presidential trivia that Joey gave me last week. And lucky for us, our fearless editor did not listen to that episode, so he has no idea what it, what awaits him. So, John, are you ready? This is true, but if this is uh, you're and Joey's idea of fun, I think I need to let you guys have more time off. Oh, it would be much appreciated. <laughs> All right, so let's let's get right into it here. All right. So, which president won the election with the fewest total number of votes, like total votes? My guess would be George Washington. Your guess is incorrect. Mm-hmm. It was Thomas Jefferson in 18, 1804 with 104,000 votes. Okay. All right. Which two members of the Whig Party have won the presidency? My American history knowledge has faded, obviously. Uh, John Adams and John Quincy Adams. I'm sure that's wrong. Oh, no. That's not, a, not even a little bit correct. That's what I thought. That was uh, William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor in 1840. I never would have gotten it anyhow. I knew it was the wrong era. Okay. Well, tip, I was 50 tippy, years off. Tippy Canoe and Tyler Right, too. exactly. Yeah. That I remember. All right. So this, this is a more recent one. Gary Johnson ran against Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election as a libertarian. What state was he governor of prior to running? I interviewed Gary Johnson. I should know this. I think it was New Mexico. You are correct. It was New Mexico. Wow. Yeah, you did better than I. Worst I I can do now is 10%. (laughs) I'm excited. I guessed Arizona, so you you beat me there. I knew it was the Southwest. (laughs) All right. Which incumbent president lost his election campaign and only received 23.2% of the vote? 23.2% of the vote. Huh. You want a hint? Yeah. He was a Republican. 
That's not a hint. <laughs> Only won 23% of the vote. I'm stumped on this one. It was 1912 because it was Taft. He lost because Roosevelt was running as the Bull Moose Party. Buddy. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. All it right. all comes back to me after you tell me the answer. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. Yeah. I got that one wrong, too, and I'm still mad about mm. it. All right. 1968 was the last time a third party won an electoral college vote. Who was the candidate who won those electoral college votes? 68? Yep, 68. Uh, well, it was either John Anderson or Ralph Nader. I'm going to go with Anderson. Uh, I was George Wallace. Oh, for, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> I almost <laughs> said a bad word on the podcast, Jacob. Yeah, of course we it was we Wallace. We bleeped you. Now, this one is a deep cut. What animal was the mascot for the Prohibition Party? A skunk. I have no idea. A camel. A camel. I never would have gotten that. So dry. Um, uh, got it. All right. So, ooh, this one. Former wrestler Jonathan Albert the Impaler Sharkey ran for president in 2012 against Barack Obama and Mitt Romney on a platform of justice reform by impaling criminals. He also claimed to be what? I, I, I bet Riley would know this. I think he's a wrestling fan. Uh he also claimed to be what? The clue is that he called himself the Impaler. That doesn't help me. Immortal. I don't know. He claimed to be a vampire. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's, here's a more normal one, uh, but also extremely vague. Which presidential candidate's slogan was a stronger America, let America be America again, stronger at home, respected in the world? Reagan? John Kerry. Oh, boy. He's 04. Okay. All right, last one. A mere 40 years ago, beach volleyball was just beginning. No bureaucrat would have invented it, and that's what freedom is all about. Which politician said that? Romney? No. <laughs> Romney. Newt Gingrich. <laughs> oh, God, that sounds like Newt. Yeah, it does. It's a very Newt Gingrich thing to say. So I think you got I won. one. I you got, got one. one. I... I think I, wow. You crushed me, I Jacob. I crushed you, with, you my, crushed with my two and a half. Oh, my God. All right. Well, now we know officially that Joey shafted us on these trivia questions. He did. He made, made the editor embarrass himself. I could tell you to cut this out of the podcast, but I would <laughs> never do that. So now I can take abuse from all of our listeners. It's true. It's true. I, I guess, well, here's the real question. Could the listeners have gotten this? We want to know. Absolutely. Let, let us know. Yeah, send Joey the emails, though, not yes, me. please. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, John. You bet. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Dr. Mark Harrison for being on this week, as well as our editor, John Ralston. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching for Indie Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen. And if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to send us more fun trivia topics, you can do so by emailing me at jacob at or joey at joey at And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, email editors at theenvyindie.com. People with Bodies does our theme music, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, here with reporter and producer Jacob Solis, and we'll talk to you next week. Indie Matters.